Well, good morning. How are we? Good. Hey, I'm glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 5. Um, as you're turning there, this morning we're looking again at the story of the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. And today we are looking more at what comes uh, after Jesus healing the man. And really, I mentioned uh, last week that so far in the Gospel of John, as we've been in this series uh, now for 22 weeks, and that that's, may sound like a lot, but just wait till we're like 60 weeks in, and I'm like, we're now in 60 weeks. Remember when 22 weeks sounded uh, like a lot? So just buckle up. If you're, if you're thinking this is going to take a while, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while, but it's good. And as we've been in this series, we have seen Jesus save and heal And perform signs. And there has been uh, really some opposition to him and to his ministry. But here in chapter 5, we are really going to see it further unfold. Which really may seem strange to us as we, we look at this. Because this chapter started out so good. Really, this chapter started out really wonderful. Jesus showed up in the area of the multitudes. He showed up to those that were sick and paralyzed and blind. And Jesus had healed a man, a a lame man that was this way for 38 years, as we saw in verse 5. So this man that really thought, man, there's no hope, there's, there's no life for me other than sitting here really without life. Uh, other than this kind of lame, hopeless version, and, and Jesus saw him and reached out to him, and Jesus did really in that what no one else could do. And so what we see is that Jesus really goes where the sick are. He goes where there is a physical need, but even further, Jesus goes where the sinner is in need of a Savior. He goes where there is a spiritual need. And in this, what we kind of looked at a little bit, and we're going to look at all, all, a lot more this morning is that in this, Jesus makes the man whole. And so Jesus not only healed this man from a a physical issue, he also is pointing this man away from the pool and towards a deeper spiritual healing and wholeness. And really in this, what we saw last week, is really this beautiful desire of Jesus to see that the man was healed completely. But in the midst of that, there, there were those that were more concerned about rules and traditions than with healing and wholeness. And so again, as I mentioned last week, Jesus directs beyond tradition and law to engage and reach the helpless and the broken. He, he doesn't uh, defy it. He, he doesn't abolish it, but he really uh, honors it and reaches beyond it to really engage and, and reach those in need that he goes where it was not very popular to go, and he does what is not very popular to do, especially not on the Sabbath. And so now in our text, as we continue in this story, we're really going to go from looking at the healing mercy and power of Jesus to looking at the conflict and the, and the opposition of religious leaders. And so there's kind of this switch in focus here. And so as we read our text and apply it this, this morning, what we're going to learn is that in the midst of conflict and opposition, we are to look only to Jesus, seeking to be sanctified, not sinful. If you're taking notes this morning, those are your fill-in-the-blanks, that in the midst of conflict and opposition, we are to look only to Jesus, seeking to be sanctified and not sinful. 
And so we're going to read in John chapter 5, starting at the end of verse 9. It says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your word. God, I thank you for the truth that we see in your word time and time again, week after week. And God, I pray that in a, in a culture and in, in, in many environments that, that kind of steal and long to rob our, our attention and our affection and our focus from you, God, I pray that by the, the guiding of your Holy Spirit, you would just give us a, an unwavering focus. That God, this morning, we would long to fix ourselves completely upon you, looking only to Jesus. So God, we, we thank you for your word that, that we don't have to wonder, uh, how, how would we do that? How would we walk in that kind of instruction? But, but God, we look to your word, the truth of your living and active word upon which we can know you and seek you. And so God, we thank you for those things. God, I pray that as we spend the next 30 minutes or so really just unpacking this story, God, I pray that that you would fix us towards you. God, whatever we're walking in with, whatever uh, story or whatever week we have, uh, we have had, God, that this morning and in this time, we would really lay it at your feet. That we would give you all that we are in response for all you are. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So at the end of uh, verse 9 that we read, this was not part of our text last week. We kind of ended at the beginning of uh, verse 9 because uh, at this point it says, now that day was the Sabbath. And so right at the beginning of our text this week, the reason for the break between the two weeks is there is a change in focus. That here, John is really pointing us to a major shift. That in verse 9, John is really giving us the theme of what issue is going to come up. And see, the, in Jewish culture, Sabbath is a big deal, and really rightfully so. And so to give you a little bit of background and an understanding as to what's going on and why this is going to be the focus of the conflict and opposition, is that this was a practice commanded by God for his people Israel to keep. And so the purpose of Sabbath is to rest from uh, work and activity to really fix yourself entirely on the Lord. This was really the, the heart and the focus. This is why Sabbath was called and is called the Lord's Day. And so in Exodus chapter 20 and verses 8, 8 through 11, we see that the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week on which the, the people were commanded to rest and to do this in remembrance that God created the universe in, in six days and then rested on the seventh day. 
And so under the, the old covenant between God and Israel, sacrifices were made daily at the temple, and the worship on this day was continual. And so there was a, a special command, really a, a, a special instruction to Israel given by God regarding really a, a sacred assembly on this day, which they called Sabbath. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, assemblies. They are my appointed feasts. And six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, a holy assembly. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And so listen, keeping, keeping of the Sabbath was very, very important. It was in fact the, the sign of the covenant between Israel and the Lord. We, we see this even in Exodus 31. And really what we find in the Old Testament, if we read even further about the Sabbath, Sabbath is that two themes really governed Sabbath. It was remember and observe. Remember and observe. And so the focus of Sabbath is that the Jewish observer also remembers the freedom that comes with following God. And so just a a side note for you, when we look at Sabbath, our our tendency is to go, okay, this is a back then kind of thing. And and, and we uh, often can kind of detach from the Old Testament, which is uh, not at all wise and really uh, important for us to consider, apply, and, and know what's happening in the Old Testament. And then in light of what's happening in the New Testament. And so just an important side note for you, for those of us who do not have much history on Sabbath, and what that means for uh, New Testament Christians today. Traditionally, uh, Christians have held their primary corporate worship service on Sundays. This, isn't, this hasn't always been the case, but more uh, uh, traditionally, not historically, but traditionally that's been the case. And New Testament Christians do this because this is in celebration of Christ's resurrection, which occurred on a Sunday. And so it's important to note there is, there is no explicit biblical command in the New Testament that either Saturday or Sunday should be the day of worship. So if right now you're finding yourself in a great debate, an argument on the Sabbath day, uh, which I'd be surprised if many of you are, but if you do find yourself in this or or concerned of which day is it as we look at the text, uh, uh, Romans 14 and Colossians 2 give great explanations from the Apostle Paul that there is no explicit biblical command. But what we need to understand is there are many explicit biblical commands that we are to worship. That it's not the specific day that matters as much as it is the subject and substance and person of our worship. And so church, if you don't know, that's why we're here together as the church to focus on God together as part of our week because it's his day. And so if you wonder, man, uh, how should I frame up my Sunday? And you kind of look at, well, I got to attend church and then I'm going to do all these things. Let me tell you that after you leave here, everything else that you do on your own focus is secondary, that this is the Lord's day. And so consider that from right now to the rest of today.
that it's the Lord's day? What should your time look like? Really, that should be your, your, your reflection, your focus, that this is the Lord's day. It's not your day. You had six days for you where you're spending time with the Lord, but you're going to do all kinds of stuff. But really, this is God's day. And that's really important for us to understand. But see, in our text, Jesus has not yet died and been resurrected. And the church has not been established yet. And so here in this text, there is an issue that that we often do not face about how and when to worship and how and when to work on that day. So this is when Jesus healed the man at the pool. It was on this day of remembering and observing. If we go back even last week in our, in our time in the text, we see that, that John is bringing this fact up, almost reminding us as it's going to come up, this is on the Sabbath. And so this is where we begin to really see the conflict in the text. In, in verse 10 that we read, the religious leaders confront the man who was healed by Jesus and they ask him, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, what the Jewish leaders in this text are referring to is a command that was given by God to his people in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 22, where Jeremiah wrote, And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember that? Remember that line? Keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. See, in this passage, Jeremiah protested against loading and unloading on this Sabbath. Because then the focus is on the work, not God. And so doing work would ultimately distract from worshiping and focusing on God on his day. But, but see, again, this is an important question for us to ask, not just look at, but consider this morning, where is the focus supposed to be? Where is the focus supposed to be on the Lord's day? And so this is the issue of the prophets when talking about the Sabbath, and this is the issue to, to Jesus as well. And see, the, the Jewish leaders took the law of the, the Sabbath. They took the instructions here and other places in the Old Testament, which said, you shall not work. And what they did was they really wrote detailed explanation as to what that exactly meant. And this went well beyond what the Old Testament instructed. And so this is something where the, the Jews, even today, have extensive instructions of what work is and what work isn't. In fact, an example of this is that in 1992, in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel, there was an apartment building on fire. And this fire was happening on the Sabbath. And before anyone called the fire department or grabbed buckets for uh, water to really uh, alleviate the issue, they uh, sought out a rabbi. And they asked the rabbi if a telephone call on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. And so they went back and forth on this. And, and really the reason is because making a phone call would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. And so in the half hour that it took for the rabbi to decide, should we not or, or, or should we do this, the fire spread to two neighboring apartments. And so here, what I want you to understand is that the problem is not just with interpretation, but also with negative effects. And so consider this in our text that they're looking at the man 
not the miracle. That their conflict is with what Jesus did, which really leads them to question, as we'll see further in the text, they're questioning who Jesus is. And so the reaction of the Jewish leaders shows that no matter how much truth or evidence God provides, there will always be some people who refuse to see the truth. There will always be somebody who is refusing the truth. But here, what we need to understand is that Jesus, was, Jesus is God in flesh, healing with divine power and mercy. But the religious leaders couldn't and wouldn't see the miracle or the Savior. All they could see was someone that had violated their wrong interpretation of God's true law. And so a sign meant to increase faith only increase the blindness of those who refuse to see the sign. And see, church, this is so often true of those we face conflict and opposition, opposition to. That when we share and we give evidence of what God has revealed through his word and his work, there is still conflict and opposition because some are so focused on being right, they're not understanding what it means to be made right. But remember, church, the ultimate goal is not that we seek to be right, but that we seek to be restored. This is really the ultimate goal of the believer and longing for everyone they would come into contact with. And really what that means then is that we look to Jesus. And I think that is a a difficult challenge, a really important challenge we need to wrestle with. That in every uh, conflict or or opposition or uh, interaction with believer or non-believer, we shouldn't always try to seek to be right, but that we would long for both ourselves and them to be made right before our maker. And so this is what's happening in the text. There's this great opposition. There's There's this intense focus, but it's on the wrong thing. And so in the midst of that, there's this need to look only to Jesus. See, in verse 11, the man who healed Jesus answered the religious leaders. It says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so understand, this is not wise church elders asking questions for authenticity. This is bad religious leaders being petty, okay? Their focus is wrong and their motive is, look to us. We know the law, and we govern the focus of your Sabbath and your life. And so see here, church, this steals ultimately from the focus of God. If any leader ever in the church tells you to look to them before looking to God, that's no leader. That's terrible, terrible advice. I've told you time and time again, we don't gather here for thus saith Pastor David. If that's the case, let's go home. Let's go home or let's go find a real church. But we gather here as a body of believers to really reflect and look upon, thus saith the Lord. And so what these men are doing here steals from the focus of God. I mean, they're doing worse than what they command not to do on the Sabbath, that they aren't remembering and observing. And so really, church, what we need to understand to look only to Jesus is that when people ask us why we do what we do or why we believe what we believe, the answer isn't looking to Jesus. 
The answer is not in some methodology that you have or some specific Bible study you have, but all of those things in of themselves should lead to an explanation that you look only to Jesus. And so let me tell you, as we're reading the text, when it comes to doctrine and practice, we're always going to side with Jesus, okay? When it comes to doctrine and practice, we're always going to side with Jesus, Because many, as we see in the text with the religious leaders, many give answers, but not all are looking to Jesus in them. And so here, the Jewish leaders didn't want to know who healed the crippled man. They only wanted to know who told them to carry his bed, his mat, on the Sabbath. And so in this, there's a real fight for focus. There's a real fight for focus going on of who And what should we be looking to on the Lord's day? And let me tell you, this is not just a fight that we look historically at in the text. That is a fight for us as well. Because let me, let me tell you, just so we understand the text rightly, and as we've been asking the questions of what does this text say about Jesus? And what does this text say about me? And then how should I then live in light of those truths? I I want you to understand we are not Jesus in the text. We are not Jesus in the text. If we're going to look at these uh, people in the text, and man, who do I relate to, and what is, what is true of Jesus, what is true of me, I think it's important that we not remove ourselves or, or just kind of gloss over the text, but really understand that as we're seeing in the story, we're the sick man with the problem. And, and, and often we can tend to be the religious leader with the wrong view that the man at the pool was focusing only on the water when Jesus came to him. And then he was healed, but he didn't see his healer. He didn't see Jesus for who he really is. And then we have the religious Jewish leaders who didn't see the glory of Jesus in in the moment of the healing. They they only saw the breaking of their tradition and, and the conflict with their religiosity. And so let me tell you, this is, this is who we really relate to in the text. That often we are the ones who have the wrong focus, that need to be pointed to Jesus. But see, some, even today, might say, no, it is the Lord I look to perfectly, uh, every day, all the time. But see, even in that, think, think about how often that is challenged when it comes to our focus and even our affection. I mean, really, this, this brings up a, a bigger question, church, that I think we need to consider today. I mean, what do we turn to instead of God to fix that which only he can? See, I, I think one way or another, all of us have had that kind of uh, moment. And, and understand, I'm not talking about medicating something so that we'll just dull our senses to our suffering in the moment. I'm talking about real healing. What else have you sought other than the Lord that has just robbed your focus and your affection from who God is? I mean, really, that, that's an important question to ask. Where is your hope? Like, what do you fix your uh, attention and your affection upon? Is it some kind of a pill or high or addiction? Is it, is it a specific person, a, a family member, a close friend? 
Or maybe it's a, it's a self-help book or a specific guru or, or a certain celebrity. There are all these things that sometimes we tend to put our focus in and none of them will save us. None of them will make us whole. And so let me tell you, I've never known a, a pill or a person or a book or a high that possesses the power that will completely save or heal someone's entire life. And let me tell you the reason because of that that we find clearly in Scripture is that none of that saves the man as a whole. That may temporarily numb out the man, but that does not save the man as a whole. Only Jesus does. And so let me tell you, our problem is not some disease or some person or some, some bad thought in our mind. Our problem is sin. Our problem is sin, and sin is such an unfixable problem for us that as we see in Scripture, God sent Jesus to die for it. And so really, when it comes to our focus, there are a lot of things that we tend to point ourselves towards that don't really matter and will never resolve anything. Because ultimately, only Jesus matters, and only He is to be our focus. And so let me tell you, that is what is being challenged in the text. I mean, look at the Jewish leader's response. They're not asking, who made you well? They're not asking, who healed you of this 38-year illness and inability? And you can imagine that the Jewish leaders probably know this guy. They've probably seen him from time to time, and they're not asking the question of who changed your life completely? Who did the work at the pool that no one else and nothing else could do? They're not asking these questions. What they're focused on is questioning the healing and the healer because it's really butting up against their focus and practice. And so in verse 12, the religious leaders respond to the man and they really press further for the identity of who told him it was okay to do this. They ask in verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? See, this passage is interesting because of how different it is from the, the rest of what we've learned previously. It's, it's very different in comparison to all the other stories and encounters we've seen so far in the Gospel of John. I mean, in John chapter 1, you have this beautiful, uh, uh, deeply theological prologue uh, of who Jesus is. You have John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We, you, you see Andrew and Simon Peter f- following and Andrew evangelizing. You see Philip and Nathaniel following Jesus and Philip evangelizing Nathaniel. And in chapter 2, you see disciples who believe as Jesus is performing signs. And then in chapter 3, we saw how Nicodemus meets with Jesus. And Jesus tells him how one is truly born again. And then again, John the Baptist exalts Christ continually in this ministry. And then as we saw in chapter 4, Jesus meets with the woman at the well. And this whole town believes in Jesus. And Jesus is uh, wanting to have his disciples focus on the work of the ministry in this. And you have an official who's coming to Jesus and whose son is healed. And so all of this is really incredible. And yet, 
when we get to the story of the healing at the pool of the Sabbath, the response is a little sad. See, it's that the opposition is even more intense than it has been before. But ultimately, what we need to understand in this story is that this is still in alignment with the heart and the grace and the mercy of God displayed in Jesus. Because Jesus saves and he heals and he performs signs to point people to himself. So really the focus is what John tells us later, really in the theme verse that we keep uh, speaking of and we keep seeing in the opener video behind me, out of John chapter 20, that they may believe and have life in his name. So although we see conflict and, and confusion, even more so in the previous four chapters of John's gospel, it doesn't mean that it stays this way. It doesn't mean that it stays this way. In fact, what we see in, in verse 13 leads us to the wonderful resolve of Jesus in verse 14. We read in verse 13 that it said, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And really what we see is that quite possibly Jesus is withdrawing because he isn't looking to heal everyone physically in this. In fact, that's really not the focus of Jesus' earthly ministry, to heal everyone physically. And so we see with this man that the man really doesn't know Jesus. At this point, he really doesn't fully know Jesus. The man is healed, but he is not whole yet. That he is being questioned about the means and the actions after his healing. And really, even by the questioning, the focus is in the wrong place. That to the religious leaders, the focus is Jesus was the man who broke the Sabbath rules. And to the healed man, the focus is Jesus was the guy who healed him. And so there's all this confusion about who Jesus is. And really the need is to look only to him. And so let me ask you here this morning, church, who is Jesus to you? Is he a good teacher? A fun rule breaker of religious ways? Or is he savior? And I think more importantly, what is his, what is his word say about who he is? More than who you say that he is, what does Jesus say in his word about who he is? See, if we're to look only to Jesus, then we need to not look to ourselves and our own methods to understand who he is, but to his word. And so in, in verse 14, we really see this resolve in fact, we see the resolve when the man comes again face to face with Jesus. It says in this verse, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now look at what John tells us in this passage, both from what we learned last week and what we learned this week. Look at what John tells us. In verse 6, it says, Jesus saw him. And in verse 14 here, it says, Jesus found him. See, as we, as we looked last week, this is true of many of us. That in the midst of helplessness and brokenness 
and confusion and distorted focus, Jesus sees us and he finds us. He sees us and he finds us just like the man at the pool. That the man at the pool was not seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking him. And this man was not finding Jesus or really even looking for Jesus, but Jesus found him. And so here, it's not only significant that Jesus sees us and finds us, but also that he speaks to us, just as he did with the man at the pool and now in the temple. See, Jesus had no intention of walking away from this man and leaving him with nothing more than a healed body. I think that's really important for us to understand, that Jesus had no intention of just healing the man physically and walking away. And so as Jesus finds the man, he gives him an important instruction and command. When he says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, at first when we read this, it might seem like Jesus is blaming a a sin for this man's condition. When he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. But really, I think that 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 is is not Jesus' point. And understand, this is my my thought here, but I think the point is that Jesus is interested in making this man and making us whole. Because health is more than just freedom from pain. Joy is more than just pleasure. And wholeness is more than just not sinning. That when we have faith in Jesus, it is never forgetting that even on our best day, without Jesus, we are crippled and dying and broken and sinner. And so it is Jesus alone who is the source of our healing and the source of our wholeness. And so really what that means, church, is that you and I cannot walk in this world unless we are looking to and walking in Jesus. And so think about these questions again. What do you fix your attention upon? What do you fix your uh, affection upon? And where is your hope? See, with this man, as he comes face to face with Jesus, it changes his life completely. This is a theme that we have seen so far, and we'll continue to see all throughout the the Gospel of John, that when people come face to face with Jesus, it changes them completely. And see, this is not because of something in him, but because of who Jesus is. And so understand, when Jesus said, sin no more, he was pointing the man to a greater healing. So see, Jesus' aim in healing this man's body is that it would lead to a healing of his soul. We even see this in Jesus' words to the man. We see the physical healing, the acknowledgement of Jesus. See, you are well. And then he points to a spiritual healing. Sin no more. And so here, as Jesus instructs the man to sin no more, it's an instruction to pursue holiness. And so this is the desire of God in all of us even. That as he has healed us and saved us from a life of sin, and to a life of holiness that we are to live in Christ. And again, understand, church, pursuing holiness is what those do who have received a gift. It's not a work of those who are trying to be gifted something. I mean, we see this in the text. Jesus had given this man a gift. That means it's free. 
It's not earned. That it came first before the command of Jesus. The man didn't earn it. He wasn't good enough for it. And ultimately, Jesus chose him freely and he healed him. And so now, his life was marked by his mercy and this power. This mercy and this power of Jesus. That the gift of healing, the gift of God's free grace was the means of his holiness. And so remember, as I said before, you and I cannot walk in this world unless we are looking to and walking in Jesus. And so what I mean by that is for us to walk out of here and to sin no more, we can only do that when we look to and we walk in Jesus. We can only do that when we look to and we walk in Jesus. And see, when, what that means is that when a person is converted, when a person trusts and believes upon Christ for salvation, they should not and they cannot walk as others do who are not of the faith. And they should not and cannot walk as they previously did. And so let me tell you, what we learn in this text is that if you're walking in sin, it means that you are not walking in Christ. And really, that is ultimately a, a rebellion against God and a, and a disobedience. And so, church, we need to understand there are going to be temptations. There are going to be areas where we are even feeling the pull to, to sin and to backslide from God after our conversion. But still, what I think is so important is that the grace of God teaches us to deny sin and to live righteously in Christ Jesus. That although we are, we are not without sin in this world, and we will never come to a place here on earth to live sinless, there is a change in the believer who looks to and walks in Jesus. That really, the walk that they live is different. That they walk in a different life, a different focus, because they are looking to and they are walking in Jesus. And so let me tell you, church, this is the gospel applied in the life of everyone who has trusted in Jesus for salvation. Because to those who respond to the gospel and receive the gift of wholeness from God, that is salvation through Christ alone, when they receive this without any merit or earning on their part, to those, Jesus says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And so see, the response to that kind of gift isn't trying to work for the gift. I mean, could you imagine how, how weird that would feel if someone uh, you were to give a gift to, a gift they didn't deserve, and their response to that was, thank you so much, I must earn it now. If a gift is ever to be earned, then it's not a gift. And so here, it's not a gift that we work for, but we show gratitude for. Seeking relationship with the gift giver. And so here, this is Jesus' command and invitation to the man. Ultimately, what we see him saying is, listen, you've been given a gift that has wholly changed your life. Go live in light of that. And so see, church, as we saw in the text, Jesus was not focused 
on seeing that the man was merely sincere, but that the man was completely changed. And so what, we're, what we have seen so far is this really important focus that needs to be put in place. It's that we look to Jesus. And see, what we'll, what we'll really see next week is how this change in the man coming face to face with Jesus causes him to proclaim and really go public with who Jesus is. That where the man's life was previously defined by waiting at this pool and being sick and being broken for 38 years, that his life is now defined by living a holy life because of a Savior who made him whole. And so church, as we come to a close this morning, I want you to consider this question. What are you focused on? What is capturing your hope, your affection, and your desire? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Because I want you to understand, if what is capturing your focus and your desire and your hope is anything other than Jesus, then you will never be made whole. Nothing else is going to satisfy you and nothing else is going to heal you. Now, there's a lot of things that'll make you happy in the moment and kind of numb you out, but none of those things will make you whole. Only belief upon Jesus and relationship with him will make you whole. So what are you focused on? Is it Jesus, the saving Savior, or is it something else? Let's pray.